Now, in, in lieu of a kid's talk, I'm not going to ask the kids to come out at all, uh, I'm going to show a little animation of the flood. Now, in terms of the absolute detail, you know, the minor inaccuracies, but it's pretty good anyway. So we'll just have a look at a little, um, little cartoon. Here we go. Long ago, God saw that the people on the earth were becoming very bad. But one man, Noah, obeyed God. Noah, I want you to build a boat. Noah started right away. What on earth is but the people <laughs> laughed at Noah because they lived in a desert and there was no water anywhere for his boat. But Noah just went on building the boat. When the boat was finally finished, God told Noah and his family to go into the boat. In went his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In went their wives and Mrs. Noah. Now bring two of every animal. Noah did exactly what God told him to do, and God watched over him. climbed into the boat, God shut the door. Then it began to rain. It rained so much, the water was over the meadows. It rained so much, it covered the towns. It rained so much, it even covered the mountains. But inside the boat, everyone was safe. After 40 days and after 40 nights, the rain finally stopped. But it still wasn't time to get off the boat. Water was everywhere. One day, Noah let a little dove fly out to see what was happening on the earth. It brought a green leaf back. Hooray! The plants were growing again. It was almost time to come out. At last, everyone was out of the boat, and Noah built an altar. Thank you, God, for keeping us safe. Then, something wonderful happened. God put a beautiful rainbow in the sky, and made Noah a promise. I will never flood the whole earth like that again. And when God makes a promise, he keeps it. There you go. <clears throat> uh, just a few um, little perhaps, facts about the, um, the ark and the flood. With the size of the flood, and we read about the small... Oh, sorry, the size of the ark, we read about the dimensions this morning. Uh, apparently, you could fit up to... 40,000 small sheep or about 20,000 big fat sheep into the ark. That's quite a lot. Uh, apparently, um, birds such as ravens and doves were used in navigation 
um, right into the 19th century. Uh, apparently a, a raven will fly straight to land. They have this sort of awareness or sense and they just go straight for it and they have um, the ability to fly for a long way. But apparently doves aren't too good at the whole flying caper. They can do it for a bit. But uh, because of their inability to sustain flight, um, they need to land a bit more quickly. And so it means lands a bit closer if a dove uh, goes in a particular direction and comes back. If there's no land in close range, it'll just come back with nothing. Um, Noah and his family were on the ark for a bit over a year, about 370 days. Um, that's about as long as our caravan club were away most years, apparently. <laughs> and some other retirees. That's how long they spend on cruise ships each year. <laughs> um, the Bible says that the ark came to rest on the, the mountains of Ararat. It doesn't say it was on Ararat itself, but the mountain range in Turkey. So it doesn't specific, specify the particular mountain, but somewhere there. Um, one of the more exciting things, of course, is that uh, the story of the flood tells us of the first drunk in the Bible. So Noah himself was a drunk. Not always, just one occasion. Um, interesting too that um, Noah's first words were a curse, according to the Bible. Doesn't mean they're the only words he ever spoke, but they're the only ones recorded. So it kind of has an incredible legacy. This is a you know, great hero of the faith, and yet the only words recorded were in fact a curse. And Noah was the third longest lived person in the Bible. He lived for 950 years. Um, third after Methuselah, who lived for 969 years, and Jared, who lived for 962 years. And as apart from the book of Genesis, Noah is in fact mentioned in eight other books of the Bible, and he also writes a mention in the Quran. So a few little bits of information there with regard to the flood and Noah. Well, let's um, bring the uh, first slide up, please. Oh, on the back screen, it's getting close. Oh, there we go. Okay, well, I might just pray as we um, commence the sermon proper. Father, we just pray again that as we open your word together, that we might um, just really be guided by it, informed by it, that we might be challenged by it, that you might speak to us. We ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Now, because I was assigned um, three chapters this morning, um, which, you know, I thought was okay, and I'm happy to go verse by verse if you want. <laughs> but out of deference to those who um, might not want to stay here till tomorrow, I decided to concentrate my attention on a much, much narrower uh, frame. So the part that uh, Peter read is getting closer to the bits that I'm going to sort of think through. Um, all the rest you saw in the cartoon. It's okay, you'll be fine. <laughs> so as the account of the flood opens, we're introduced to Noah. We're told that he's um, righteous and he is blameless in his generation. He was introduced as a man who walked with God. And against the backdrop of Noah's righteousness and Noah's blamelessness, and Noah walking with God, we find that the rest of the world is corrupt. It is rotten. It would appear, therefore, from the opening verses of the story, from chapter 6 on, that the 
that genuine faith in the creator God was in rather short supply despite the recency of the creative act itself. If we have a look at, I hope I press the right button here, oh yes, uh, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So we see something here of the state of mankind. And so I'm going to try to deal with the uh, our, well, structure of the sermon this morning. Just three points. The first we're going to look at corruption and judgment. So we'll start with the fun bits first. We look at, we see the state of humanity. Humanity is corrupt. Humanity is rotten. And in fact, the Hebrew word used here in verse 11 and in verse 12 can actually mean destroyed. It's actually rotting away so as to destroy itself. And interestingly, the very same word is used in verse 13 when God says, I will destroy them. See, man was on a trajectory of self-destruction. And as we read through through the early parts of Genesis, we find that, that this act of self-destruction is completely consistent with the, the warning God had given in the Garden of Eden with regards to the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For God said that on that day, Adam and Eve would surely die. So the eating of the fruit of that tree was both a self-destructive act and an act which brought down upon humanity the promised judgment of God. And then as we read through from chapter 3 of Genesis on through to chapter 11, that is from the fall of humanity through to the Tower of Babel, we find that it tells a tale of the corrupting influence of sin, the corrupting influence of sin on all of humanity. So it's no surprise to us when we get to chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 that we find here that God is about to destroy that which has set about destroying itself. And I guess as we look around our world today, we see that nothing much has changed. When we read through the story of Noah and the flood, we find at the very end that God simply acknowledges that humanity remains corrupt but that he won't, continue, he won't destroy the earth by a flood ever again. But humanity itself has not changed. We only need to read the newspapers to see that that's true for those who actually recognise there are such things as newspapers anymore. There are some who wouldn't recognise. Or your Facebook... No, no, don't worry about that one. I was going to say Facebook feed. Um, but the reality is that we read of families ruined by sin. We, we read of domestic violence of child abuse, of family breakdown. And further, we see countries in the grip of war. We see homes destroyed, lives lost, children without parents, refugees on the march in unprecedented numbers, starvation in Yemen and in East Africa uh, in proportions that are unimaginable. And then we get to verse 13. It says, The earth is filled with violence through them. The Hebrew word translated violence is Hamas, is not limited to the expression of uh, physical aggression. 
It actually refers to something far more wide-ranging and far more significant. It's the idea of the rupture of the created order of things, beginning with the relationship between God and the people he has made, extending through to the relationship between mankind and the natural world, and goes further to the relationships among people. It's the violence brought about by the disruption of relationship, of the created order itself. And again, we see this kind of thing writ large today. We see the impact of human sin so broadly uh, expressed. We see it in the way we treat our world, in pollution, in deforestation. We see it in the way we treat people, the exploitation of labour, slavery, greed, poverty and so on. We see it in the current debate over same-sex marriage. We see people arguing for kinds of relationships that are self-evidently contrary to the way God created them to be. We know that God created um, created sexual union to exist only in the context of difference of male and female, and in that we see unity in the context of diversity. I'm reminded of Romans 1. Verse 26 through 28. For this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. You know, there are parts of the world now, I suppose Canada comes to mind particularly, where if I was to say those things publicly, I could be charged with, a vil- uh, with vilification and fined, or perhaps even um, imprisoned. But we need, as Christians, to stand firm against a world of wrong. Consider, too, the description that Jesus gave when he spoke of the time of Noah in the context of speaking of his second coming. And on first reading it, we think, well, that's a bit strange. But on reflection, it's a really telling statement. In Matthew 24, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So as I said, Jesus here is speaking of his return, his second coming. It's something that will come completely unexpectedly. And the message in the sense of this, or in effect in this passage is, be ready for you don't know when it will occur. And when it does... Those who are not ready will face certain judgment and certain condemnation. But notice also the very ordinariness of the activities here described. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. This is the everyday stuff of life. But it's happening without God being in the picture. It is a picture or a description of indifference. Things just go on as they always do. God doesn't need to be acknowledged. The idea that we can do whatever we like without there being a need to give account or to pay a penalty is here writ large. 
But such indifference gives rise to a false sense of security and an unwarranted self-satisfied confidence. For in the story of Noah, eventually a flood came and killed all but eight souls. And eventually Jesus will return and God's gracious patience will come to an end. It's also the sort of attitude that uh, Ezekiel described in chapter 9 when he was speaking of a terrifying judgment. It says this, And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, the city full of injustice. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land, the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. Note their sin. They lived as though God neither cared nor even saw their deeds. They lived lives indifferent to God. They lived and acted as though God didn't even exist. To believe such a thing obviously opens the door to all sorts of license when it comes to the way humans might behave. People will do despicable things when they think they can get away with it, when they think God doesn't see. This sort of attitude informs much of the way we think and live in the West today. It informs a secularist sort of worldview that permeates our Western society, our Western way of thinking. I was reading recently of uh, some situations going on in Sweden where because of political expediency, courts and immigration authorities have ruled that Iranian Christians who have been converts from Islam, who came to Sweden as asylum seekers and refugees and have been living there for years and are clearly genuine Christians, are being forced to return to Iran where they'll face certain imprisonment and likely torture because of the crime of apostasy. Part of the reasoning, apparently, of the courts and the immigration authorities is that becoming a Christian is simply a choice. If they go back to Iran, they say, all they need to do is choose to become Muslims again and they won't suffer persecution. In other words, Swedish authorities have so little understanding of the reality of God, of the truth of Jesus and his work on the cross that they really no longer comprehend what this means. They reduce conversion to a somewhat meaningless decision akin to insignificance to the choice to wear brown pants or black pants. The latest news, thankfully, is that um, at least one person has had that order rescinded and been allowed to become permanent resident in Sweden. Another is that a, a, a young woman, well, uh, Aideen Stranson, who is an asylum seeker and a converted Muslim, she tells her story, which is that she was aware of or witnessed uh, the stoning of a young woman to death in Iran, which made her question uh, Islam and its, uh, uh, and its way of life and its teaching. And soon after that, she had a dream of Jesus, and as a consequence of that, became a Christian been living in, um, in Sweden for some time. Uh, she's a well-known person in Iran. She was an actress and the courts have ruled that she must return to Iran. Um, there's still attempts to stop that happening. However, Hungary has now said that they will accept her into their country, into Hungary itself, uh, as a genuine asylum seeker because they see the injustice of what's going on in Sweden. So these sorts of things happen in the world where, uh, where countries, whole nations, 
have ceased to understand anything to do with the truth, anything to do with what it is Jesus has done, anything to do with what it is that God has uh, done in the world or any responsibility we might have before him. We live in a practical sense as though God does not exist and has no claim upon us or our behaviour. And I think you know, these sorts of attitudes obviously plague our own country and we see day by day that they're becoming more and more prevalent. We see corruption, an unwitting self-destruction. We see violence, a total rupture of relationships created by God, brought about by the actions and attitudes of a sinful humanity. We see indifference, living and acting as though God doesn't exist, as though there will never be a day of reckoning. But there will. There was a flood, and Jesus will return. there's good news here. There is grace. We find in the flood that we are reminded of the matchless grace of God. In Genesis chapter 6, we read from verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man uh, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of of the Lord. See, God meets the reality of human sin in a couple of ways. He meets sin with judgment, but he also meets sin with grace, in which there is an offer of salvation from that sin and its consequences. In response to sin, God is going to blot out mankind at the time of the flood. And he's going to do it with the waters rushing over the sea. At the end of time, he'll do it with fire. In this act, God, in a sense, is going to undo the very order or the created order that he's imposed upon the formless earth. He's going to take it back to its pre-Genesis 1 state. It is as though, as though God is going to, with the flood, start all over again with a kind of a new Adam, with Noah. And it's in this context that we find that there is a just divine response Judgment is a just divine response to the rebellion of mankind. But in this, in this very context, we meet Noah. Noah found favour or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, we learn a little bit about Noah. We know he had a wife. We know he had three sons, Sham, Ham, Japheth. We know his sons were married. We're told in Genesis 9 that Noah was righteous. The Hebrew word here is sadiq, and it refers to, uh, it's a moral, moral comment or a statement, but it also refers to conduct consistent with the nature of a relationship. In the case of Noah, his relationship is with God. He walked with God. So his behaviour is said to be consistent with being in a relationship with God. His life wasn't characterised by corruption or violence. He did that which pleased God. And his righteousness is shown in his obedience. When he was told by God to build an ark, and stock it with provisions and load it with animals, he did what he was told. In Genesis 6.22 it says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. In Genesis 7 verse 5 it says, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. We also find that Noah was blameless in his generation. This term is comparative. Noah was what his contemporaries were not. They were corrupt and violent. 
He was righteous. He walked with God. He was one of a kind. The text gives the impression that only Noah, of all the people then alive, lived in intimate fellowship with God. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we see that he is spoken of as a man of faith. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, God spoke to Noah. Noah believed him, and Noah acted on the words of God. He spent 120 years building a boat in a place that had no water in which it could, in which it could float. In other words, he simply believed, and in response to that belief, he acted. All this is then grounded in God's grace. Noah had found favour. He was given a warning. He was to be saved from the judgment to come. He was to be saved by grace, by God's favour. God warned Noah of the impending doom. He told him what to do to be saved. And Noah responded in faith. He believed God. He built the ark according to the specifications given to him by God. He trusted in God's plan and he acted in accordance with that plan. And then through Noah... Noah's family was saved. They too then were saved from the wrath of God. This too is grace. Now we don't know a lot about, in fact we know almost nothing about the relationship between Noah's family and God. We know they believed. At the end of chapter 9 we find that out. But they simply hopped on board with Noah. The account never says that they were righteous or that they walked with God. But what it does say in Genesis chapter 6 is this but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark you, your sons your wife, your sons wives with you now in this Noah in a sense can be regarded as a type if you like a foreshadowing, an example a kind of a representative of Christ himself Noah's household was saved from the judgment of God through Noah He was the one, as Noah, the one through whom God acted. He was the one through whom God acted to bring about Noah's rescue, but also the rescue of those who were linked to Noah. They were saved, in effect, through Noah. So we see here a foreshadowing of the way God grants salvation or forgiveness to a person or to a group because of their association with, their links with, another. Someone who might stand in their place or act as a mediator. We see this more fully, of course, in the Israelites' sacrificial system where a lamb stands in the place of a sinful person or a sinful nation. But we see it in its fullness, of course, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, where Jesus stands in our place and takes upon himself our sin, that we, by being in him, might find forgiveness of sins in salvation. In addition to all this, we find that grace is shown to those who witnessed the building of the ark, which might seem like a strange thing to say, seeing they, seeing they were about to get drowned. They had 120 years of warning. They may not have known the exact nature of the destruction to come, but they saw before them day after day a righteous and blameless man, a man who walked with God, a man who actively and openly demonstrated his faith in God, building an ark. In 2 Peter 2.5, Noah is called a herald of righteousness. 
In 1 Peter 3.20, we're told that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. All of this is grace. And I don't think it's stretching things too much to say that the difference between Noah and his generation is their response to God's grace. Noah found favour and acted in obedience and faith. Those who witnessed his endeavours responded with indifference. They continued eating and drinking, marrying and giving him marriage, that is, living as though nothing was ever going to change, living as though God was, in fact, irrelevant, as though there was never going to be a day of reckoning despite the evidence before them. And I think this continues to be the response of many in our day. People interpret God's supposed inactivity as evidence of his non-existence or as a reason for a kind of practical atheism, as a, you know, living as though God doesn't actually exist, when it should, in fact, be understood as God being patient with a wayward humanity. That is, as an act of grace. Have a look at uh, 2 Peter 3. We used to read these words. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word, and that uh, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, reference to the flood. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience is an act of grace. But there'll come a time where that patience will cease, and God will act decisively. We find also not only statements about corruption and judgment, we find not only um, teaching about God's grace, we find also some uh, further information about salvation. We find in the story of the flood some instruction. In Noah's day, there was one means of salvation and no other. That means was the ark. Salvation is always, always on God's terms. He initiates it and he provides the means. When the time came, the rains began, the fountains of the deep burst forth and all who were to be rescued had entered the ark with Noah and the Lord shut him in. Noah didn't shut him in or shut himself in. He didn't close the door. The Lord shut it. The time was up. All those who were to be saved were in the ark. God shut the door. The way of salvation was now closed. The period of grace was now over and judgment had begun. The difference then between those who were saved and those who perished in the flood was a difference between being in the ark and being outside the ark. Everyone went through the flood. Everyone went through the flood. Those who died and those who lived. Those who were in the ark, though, were sheltered, covered from the exercise and the effects of God's righteous displeasure. But those outside the ark perished, but everyone went through the flood. It's obvious that those who drowned knew about the ark. 
as those who, as did those who had survived. But knowing about something is of little use unless that knowledge is actually acted on. Have a look at Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Noah responded in faith to the favour God showed him and he and his family were saved. God had provided them with one way of salvation and God took, sorry, Noah took God at his word. The others suffered the promised penalty for sin, death. And they had only themselves to blame because theirs was unbelief that was being exercised. Same is true now. John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, what was foreshadowed by Noah has come to fruition in Christ. There is only one way of salvation, and that way is Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ are saved, just as those who are in the ark were saved. And those who are not in Christ will not be rescued from the judgment to come. Thus, as those who are outside the ark were not rescued from the flood. Jesus is our ark. And we need to embark before God shuts the door. There is only one means of salvation. It is Jesus' death, resurrection, and it is our being in him. It is an act of grace. Let's finish with Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of result of works, so that no, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is a judgment to come. Noah's time saw that judgment in the, in, the, uh, in the flood. There is grace that is offered. Noah found favour in the Lord and he acted upon the word of God. And there is one means of salvation. It was the ark in Noah's time and that was a foreshadowing of Jesus who is the one means of salvation. We are either in Christ or we are not in Christ. We are either saved or we are not saved. I guess my appeal to us today is to take that on board, in effect. It wasn't intended as a pun there, by the way. But to be in Christ, to take the opportunity while it exists, and to hand over our lives to Jesus, to submit to his lordship, to acknowledge that his act was an act that took upon himself the penalty for our sin, and that we might find eternal life in him. It is by grace we have been saved, by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of our own doing, 
It is God's gift to us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the account of the flood. But we see in that the reality of the judgment of God. We see in that the offer of grace that in Noah, in the ark, a few were saved. Father, we acknowledge the reality that there is one way of salvation, that you determine that one way. And we pray that we might find ourselves this morning in Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.